Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with um, a difficult passage this morning, we want to pray above all, would you please help us to see your grace and goodness this morning, even in things that are controversial, countercultural. Help us to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus, who is at the heart of this passage. And please would you help us to follow in his footsteps. We ask for his name's sake. Amen. I'm guessing that as we come to a passage like this, some people will be struggling to see how submission is ever a good thing. It sounds too much like oppression. I'm guessing many of us will find the idea uncomfortable at best. And there will be lots of questions raised by this passage. I'm going to say now that I can't deal with all of those questions in one sermon. But please do feel very free to talk to me or Dan afterwards, maybe over lunch or to to arrange a coffee another time to talk through things further, if that feels like it's needed. If you're in a home group, hopefully as well, that will be a useful space to chew over these things in, in greater detail. If you're not in the home group, ask me about joining one. Um, for now, can I encourage us to, to come with an, an attitude of humility and Openness to being pleasantly surprised, if that doesn't sound too implausible. And this passage, and especially the instructions to slaves and to wives, may have been abused in the past to justify horrible oppression. But the text itself is still what God calls to be written through Peter. And we shouldn't dismiss what God has said simply because humans have misused it, if you can sort of separate the two things out. We are called to work hard at understanding the right use of this passage. And secondly, we should approach it looking to see the good and not just to grit our teeth and accept it begrudgingly. And we can do that because at the heart of this passage, we see the character of the God who is speaking through it. A God who cares about the oppressed, but responds to oppression and evil in a very, very different way to your average human being or political group. A God who came down in the person of Jesus Christ and who is so very different because although he committed no sin, though no deceit was found in his mouth, verse 22, though they hurled insults at him, verse 23, though they tortured him with beatings and lashings and killed him agonizingly slowly on a crude wooden cross, he did not retaliate or threaten. Instead, he bore the very sins that make our human nature so vicious, so bitter and jealous. He bore them so that we could be forgiven of that bitterness, that anger, that jealousy, that selfishness. 
and so that we could be set free of it, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, as Peter says in verse 24. He suffered to release us from the enslaving and corrupting influence of sin in our very hearts and from the condemnation it deserves. He was wounded to heal us, verse 24, so that we could become merciful instead of bitter and resentful and so that we could know God as our tender, caring shepherd instead of an appalled and hostile judge. This God came to us in mercy and not in vengeance. And he also came to change our natures so that we can respond to evil with mercy instead of vengeance. He is a good God who does not use his authority to oppress, but to set free. And so I want to ask, will we trust his word this morning? And will we look to see the good in it because of who God is? And even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, can I encourage you to reserve judgment for the next 20 minutes or so and ask yourself, what is good in this passage, in what Peter has written to us? What might actually be attractive, after all, in the pattern of relating and the worldview that he presents to us? With that said, let's come to the main point of the passage. And what Peter is doing from verse 13 onwards is basically a detailed worked application of verses 9 to 12. What he says from verse 13 flows out of our identity as a chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, called to live such good lives before the pagans that they see our good deeds and glorify God. And submission to human authorities is part of how Christians should live those good lives. That's the headline of this passage. That's what I want to tease out first. We're going to delve into the sort of application Peter gives to specific power dynamics, um, government, masters and slaves, husbands and wives. We'll delve into that later. But firstly, submission is part of how we live good lives to win non-believers over. You see that train of thought running throughout. In verse 15, Christians should submit as good citizens to silence the ignorant talk of foolish people who otherwise think that we are a dangerous and divisive influence in society. In 3 verse 1, wives are called to submit to win over unbelieving husbands. And in 3 verse 7, husbands um, are called in the same way to be considerate, perhaps not necessarily to win over unbelieving wives, because Peter seems to assume the wives believe, but perhaps to win over other people who are observing the marriage. And we can read the same motivation back into the instructions for slaves in chapter 2, because 3 verse 1 also opens with, in the same way. Slaves are to win over their masters by their conduct. And we, if we call ourselves Christians, 
are called to submit to authority for its apologetic value, that is, to win people over. Perhaps the, um, the old fable of the, the wind and the sun is helpful here. The story goes that the wind and the sun once had a wager about who could get this traveling man on the road to take his coat off. And the wind blew as hard as it could to try and blast his coat off him, but only succeeded in making the man wrap it tight around him, buttoning it up further, and the wind failed. But the sun just shone down warmly, <coughs> gently, bright, cheery rays, and the man gradually warmed up, and willingly, freely, took his coat off, put it over his arm, and strolled along. Perhaps Christians in the West are too much like the wind at times, as if browbeating non-Christians about sin and campaigning and lobbying and being prickly and standoffish is somehow the best way to bring about repentance in wider society. But the pattern that Peter lays down here is noticeably different. It is by our graciousness, by our mercy, and our humility that we will normally win people over. That's how the goodness of the gospel will shine out like the warming rays of the sun. Do you believe that? I know it's been a challenge to me thinking about how I um, respond to non-Christian culture. We are called to submit in order to win people over like the sun with the traveller. That's the main headline. But there are two key nuances I want to add, and verse 18 captures them. Slaves in reverent fear of God submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. So firstly, we are, we are to submit to people in authority not because of who they are, but because of who God is. Christian submission, Christian submission, you try saying that, shouldn't be born out of cringing fear and weakness towards other human beings. It is born from fear of God, fear of offending him or displeasing him because we love him so much. Isn't that always the way that the people you love most are the ones that you most fear letting down? We submit to win people over for God's sake. That's the first nuance. And the second nuance in the call to submit is this, that we should submit even when those in authority are harsh and undeserving, even when we're given a hard time for being Christians. Persecution and ridicule and mistreatment do not automatically let us off the hook when it comes to submission. Why is that? Well, as we've already seen, at the heart of this passage is the innocent suffering of Jesus. Peter says in verse 21 that Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Peter is not saying that we should obey if commanded to sin. That's clear from verse 17 where God is at the top of a hierarchy of loyalties 
And the word translated proper respect in verse 17 is the same one translated honor. So just when you're expecting the emperor to be held in even higher awe than God, no, he's dropped down. Very obviously so. He is to be honored or respected on the same level as everyone else below believers and below God. So God trumps all other loyalties for Christians because we are citizens of his kingdom first and foremost. And that's why we are foreigners and exiles in the world, as verse 11 or 12 says. Unless we are commanded to sin, which would be disobeying God, then we obey human authorities, even if we are treated unjustly in the process. Because just like Jesus, we can entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father who judges justly. Verse 23. We don't need to prove how right we are or get revenge. God will do that for us when Jesus comes back to judge the world. That is the day when justice will be served. Until then, we are called to endure and to submit patiently. And it is by our merciful refusal to return insults and threats and retaliation that we will win people over, just as God won us over. That is the only way that the cycle of oppressors becoming, sorry, the oppressed, those who are oppressed becoming the oppressors will be broken. But that is hard, isn't it? If you're anything like me, you bristle inside when you've been wrong. Your mind fills with a relentless stream of arguments and schemes to try and justify yourself. But this is why the justice of God is so crucial for us to remember. This is why we need to have our hearts melted with the gospel day after day. Because only that will enable us to look at the people who do wrong to us and say, there but for the grace of God go I. Only a deepening gratitude for God's mercy will enable us to repay harm with mercy. So in summary, we should submit to human authorities to win people over. And we do it even if it means suffering unjustly because this is how Christ won us. It's not easy, but he is not asking us to do anything that he has not already done. Those are the headlines. Peter applies this calling to three different situations, so let's dig into those now. Firstly, there's the call to submit to governing authorities. Peter demands our submission because when we show ourselves to be good citizens, as I've already said, we will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people, verse 15. And Peter wasn't writing in abstract here. He wrote during the reign of Emperor Nero, who was a far more corrupt, cynical, unjust leader than any prime minister Britain has had for well over a hundred years. And as Christians, Peter and his friends were already hated and viewed as an immoral threat to civilization, more so than Christians are in modern Britain. 
And yet Peter still commands submission. Perhaps because of that, Peter commands submission. Because if Christians obey the law in everything that isn't sin, if we uphold the order of society as far as we possibly can, if Christians refuse to slander those who govern us or crack cheap jokes at their expense, if Christians live servant-hearted lives of humility, mercy, and love towards our fellow citizens, even when they hate us, many will have to admit that we are good citizens. In fact, far from seeing us as a threat, many will come to see that we are the best of citizens because we play our part. We pay our taxes, we act with honesty and integrity, and we help hold up, hold together the crumbling fabric of our society. And if that seems unrealistic to you, I would love to talk to you afterwards, because that is exactly what happened in the next three centuries of church history in the Roman Empire. So we submit to our local and national governments. Even when things like Oxford's low traffic neighborhood scheme, however frustrating that may be. And will we praise our politicians when they do good? Will we speak honorably about them even when no one else does? And even when we've got a hundred different things we'd like to write to our MPs about saying that they're getting it wrong? Our default must be to submit and to honor those in authority. You'll notice in the passage, Peter doesn't give any caveats. I've given the caveat that's implied, unless we're commanded to sin. But Peter doesn't make that explicit. Our default must be to submit. So will we do that even if they make our lives harder? I'm not saying that we can't use our right to peaceful protest. I'm not saying that we can't vote against governments whose policies we disagree with. I'm not saying that we can't use the courts to challenge injustice. The government itself upholds all of these rights. And the Apostle Paul used his rights as a Roman citizen to escape injustice on more than one occasion. But unless we are commanded to sin, we must operate within the system, not try to break it. That is not our place. And we must do so because we represent a different kingdom as foreigners and exiles in the world, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, God's special possession, verse 9. We represent him. We are like ambassadors of a better king and country. And so people should clearly see that we come offering peace, the hope of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ not a declaration of war. Because as Paul said in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual rulers and authorities of this world. We must submit because of who we represent. But more than that, we can submit because our hope is not pinned on building or protecting some kind of utopia here on earth. 
Our hope is in an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept safe for us by God in heaven. So when our counsellors and MPs look at us, will they see that hope? Will they see it lived out in our lives? Secondly, submission to employers and teachers. You'll notice those words are not in the passage. Now, I don't want to diminish the suffering and the mistreatment of slaves, either historically or today, but I do want to consider how this instruction is most, most relevant to us in this room now. Roman slavery in Peter's time was different in many ways to the transatlantic slave trade in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was generally less cruel. And our relationships to employers and teachers are the closest analogies that I can think of. They reflect something of the power dynamic that was between slaves and masters. And Peter commands submission to masters, whether good or harsh. Again, in context, this must be to win over the masters, perhaps wider society, perhaps even fellow slaves. Slaves are to be a living embodiment of the gospel, following Jesus' example. And it's similar for us. We may have employers or teachers or lecturers who are harsh, unscrupulous, or just incompetent. They may pick on us because we are Christians. But unless they command us to sin, we should obey. And we should repay mistreatment with mercy and blessing, working hard, patiently enduring, and refusing to bitch about them behind their backs. We should be the best of employees and pupils in all matters that aren't sin. And we are to do that because Jesus did exactly the same for us. And this was our salvation. May it be so for our bosses and our teachers. We should pray for that. That's not to say we can't use grievance procedures if our company or our school or our university has given them. It's not to say we don't report our bosses if they're breaking the law. It's not to say we can't resign if the pressure gets unbearable, seek another job. Unlike slaves, we do have that luxury. But once again, we are called to work peacefully within the system, not break it, because we are living for a better kingdom. Our hope is not fixed on the perfect life or the perfect career now. And if it is, I'm afraid we're going to be continually disappointed because this fallen world will never deliver that kind of contentment and perfection. So when our employers or our teachers look at us, will they see Jesus? Will they see an attitude of respect and mercy that by God's grace can break the heart of stone? Thirdly and finally, 
we should submit and show honour in marriage. Wives are called to submit in 3 verse 1, and husbands are called to treat their wives with respect in verse 7. And it is, again, it's um, like verse, I think, 17. It is the same word that literally means honour. And that's a higher level of esteem than simply cold respect. As before, this is primarily about winning people over. But that doesn't mean submission and headship can be abandoned in a culture where they've become dirty words to many. Just if you look at how Paul grounds submission and headship in the relations of the Trinity and between Christ and the church, in 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5, you'll see that these are not simply cultural phenomena. Submission and headship in marriage, rightly lived, shows something beautiful about the love of God. And so they still have power to win people over today. Not just unbelieving spouses, but your children, if you have them. Your non-believing family, friends, and neighbours, who will probably notice more about the quality of your marriage than you realise. Are our marriages likely to win them over to Christ? And if you're blessed with a Christian spouse, will you build them up in their faith by submitting and honouring, as Peter says? Will you continually point your spouse back to Jesus so that they can know him and praise him even better? How does Peter call husbands and wives to do this? For wives, it is not by flaunting or enhancing physical beauty, in verse 3, but by the inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, in verse 4. Now, if the main way that you're, um, hang on, um, gold and elaborate hairstyles aren't inherently wrong, but if that is the main way that you are trying to win someone over, it probably suggests that you're more interested in winning them to yourself rather than to God. It's also futile, because that kind of beauty just fades away, sadly. But the beauty of a gentle and quiet or tranquil, we could also translate it, spirit, does not fade away. And if that is rooted in your God-given identity as a royal priestess, as a holy citizen in his kingdom, such beauty can grow and grow. It is the quiet calm of great strength and courage because of who you trust in. Notice that Peter says in verse 6, such a woman does not need to fear anything. So deeply is her security, her identity, her trust rooted in God. And so she doesn't need to prove her worth by the world's standards, by grasping for authority or seeking to get ahead. Now, don't such gentleness and tranquility of spirit point beautifully to the character of Christ, to his goodness, his power, his worth? 
And isn't that something to aspire to with the help of the Holy Spirit? The one who is in the business of building such beauty as he makes us into a holy temple for God's presence. And as a side note, if you are married to a non-Christian, perhaps it's a relief to know that as Peter says in verse 1, you can win him over without words. Now, of course, none of this means that a wife should submit if called to sin. Because she should fear God rather than her husband. And nor should she silently endure domestic abuse. As we're about to see, God does not tolerate abusive treatment of his daughters. And Peter's instructions should not prevent Christian wives relying on the support of their church or the protections offered under UK law to escape domestic abuse situations. We'll say more of that in a moment. But the general pattern for wives, that aside, as for employees, as for each of us as citizens, is to submit unless commanded to sin. And submission can be done by the Spirit, in a way that is beautiful. What about husbands? Peter commands us to be considerate and to respect, or again, honor our wives. And that means we must not take advantage of physical strength to intimidate or threaten, unless so to actually be physically violent or coercive against our wives. In short, domestic abuse of all sorts is absolutely prohibited by this passage. Any wife is made in God's image and already has immense inherent dignity and worth. And anyone who is a Christian is God's daughter. And do you know what the ruler of the universe will do if any of us abuses his image bearers or daughters? Verse 7, he will shut us out. He will ignore our prayers, and it will be as if they are bouncing off a glass ceiling. And we can say goodbye to all tangible experience of God's favor and blessing in our lives. Even if your wife is refusing to submit to you, that does not justify coercion. The Bible never says that husbands should make their wives submit in any of the passages that talk about submission in marriage. That is between her and God. So if you're a husband and you realize that your behavior towards your wife is out of order, can I urge you, please, to come and speak to the elders about it and get help? Don't think that this is okay. But also, don't think that you're just going to be met with harshness We're all sinners. You will be met with grace. And if you are a victim of abusive behavior in the home, whether you are female or male, young or old, please, again, talk to someone you trust. If possible, talk to one of our safeguarding officers, Matt or Hannah or Zoe. Please don't suffer in silence. 
And if you want to get better equipped to respond to domestic abuse as a church, look out for further details of a conference that um, Annie Thomas is organising for the 21st of January 2023. It should be really useful and I hope we'll be able to provide further details soon. You would hope it would go without saying that Christian husbands must be considerate and refrain from abusing their wives. But Peter does expect much more than that, actually. Husbands should honour their wives as co-heirs of the gracious gift of eternal life in God's kingdom. Clearly, he's assuming they are believers at this point. And how highly should we honour those who God has chosen as royal priests and as citizens in his kingdom? Husbands, do you view your wives as daughters of the king and holy? You should. And so all of the commands given to Christians in general about honouring one another, valuing one another more highly than ourselves, apply perhaps especially to husbands with their wives. Let me read you Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4, for example. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so can I just suggest the husbands, why not ask your wife, maybe this evening or at a suitable quiet moment, do you feel honoured? Do you feel valued? Do you feel like I value you more highly than myself? And the answers may be painful, may require some repentance, may require some growth and working things through. But just think, if we can do this better, in the Spirit's strength, and from a desire to please our Heavenly Father. Can you imagine the results? A non-Christian spouse would be drawn to the Christ-like sacrificial love of her husband. A Christian spouse with shaky faith would be built up and encouraged. A Christian spouse with strong faith would have even more cause to rejoice and give thanks to God. And your children, your neighbours, your friends would see Jesus as increasingly attractive, good, and beautiful because of how he is transforming you and me. Maybe once they accused us of wrong for believing in things like submission and headship. Perhaps they might come to see the beautiful reality. Isn't that something to pray for? And not just with our marriages, but as we relate to our employers, to our teachers, and to our government. Pray that they will see Christ and the hope of a better kingdom in us, that they will be won over. Why don't we pray for that now?
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way that Jesus came and sought us and saved us and won our hearts over. Lord, we thank you so much for his mercy, the way he met our sin with love, and the way that he submitted even when met with such injustice in order to win us over. Lord, we find it almost impossible to do this at times. And we pray for your help. Please melt our hearts afresh with the gospel. Please grow our sense of assurance in your justice. And help us, Lord, to submit wherever we can, wherever it is right, with glad hearts and not begrudgingly, so that people would see our hope and be won over. Lord, we cannot do this without your spirit. So fill us afresh, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.